At Baptist Health South Florida, it's our mission to care for you when you're injured or sick and help you stay healthy and fit. Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk podcast, where our respected experts bring you timely, practical health and wellness information to improve your family's quality of life. Coronavirus concerns are dominating our daily lives. You have questions. Our physicians have answers. Host Dr. Jonathan Fialco and his guest, Dr. Kamal Kaur, address the key coronavirus questions on this special episode of Baptist Health Talk. Hello, Baptist Health Talk podcast listeners. This is your host, Dr. Jonathan Fialco, and I'd like to welcome you to another special edition of our show dedicated to bringing you the latest information about the coronavirus. It's a rapidly evolving situation, and that brings with it a lot of confusion. So today we're bringing you straight answers to many of your most frequently asked questions. We've got the facts you need about everything from surgical masks, and sanitizers, to symptoms and testing. And with that, it's my pleasure to introduce our guest, Dr. Kamal Kaur. Dr. Kaur is the Mangorian Foundation Telemedicine Lead for Care and Demand and a Family Medicine Physician. Um, welcome, Dr. Kaur. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate your time, especially, and I'm sure you're very busy in your both patient care and your other duties. Um, for the listeners, I'm looking to break this conversation up into a couple of parts. The first one would be kind of questions, myths about the coronavirus to help people get more information. Secondly, we can talk about what people should do if they have symptoms or they're exposed to someone. And then maybe a little bit at the end regarding telemedicine in general, which is really coming into its own uh, with this whole uh, pandemic um, that we're suffering from right now. So to get started, uh, Dr. Kaur, what when, when you're doing your telemedicine visits and speaking to people who are contacting Baptist Care and Demand or other resources, what are the more common types of questions? What are the themes that you're seeing with people in terms of what they're asking, which any information that we can provide them would be beneficial? Sure. So aside from patients wanting to know whether or not they should get tested, one of my most common questions that I get uh, regards home treatment of the coronavirus. Uh, as you know, not everybody needs to be hospitalized or or even seen at an urgent care center if they have mild symptoms. But a lot of people want to know what they can do at home to treat themselves. And I think there's a lot of myths out there, um, such as, you know, should I gargle or swallow alcohol? Are there essential oils that are going to help? Um, salt water? And, and, you know, just basically what they can do for themselves. And what I want people to know is that all those, let's consider them myths. Um, you know, they can be more harmful than beneficial. And what we as as your health providers want you to do is make sure you're getting enough rest, make sure you're getting enough fluid so you're hydrated, and just practicing social distancing as much as you can so you can heal on your own and try not to expose and, and infect other people. So I think, I think that that's a good point, and we've used this in other podcasts. People are frightened. It's a very scary situation. We feel we don't have control over what's going on around us, and people look to seek control by sometimes doing behaviors which might not be necessarily beneficial, like, you know, buying all the toilet paper and in the supermarkets when there's not a supply issue. So some of the things they hear about, like you're saying, gargling, taking medications, obviously there's some extreme circumstance where people hurt themselves, is not what they should do. But what should they do? You mentioned the buzzword, social distancing, and let's let's spend a few minutes talking about that because that's also something that I think may get a little little misunderstood. And the idea of social distancing, of course, is to keep people away from each other so people don't give it to each other, and especially at a very rapid pace, which can out which can outweigh what our healthcare system can deliver. So can you, can you elaborate a little bit on, on the social distancing and the safe at home concepts? Sure. So social distancing has kind of a negative vibe to it. And I think when people think about it, they, they really don't like the term, but its intention is, is very positive. It's something that we have seen in the past 
um, that when implemented correctly does reduce, reduce the rate of transmission of infections and helps us, uh, helps us eradicate the infections in some communities as well. And basically what social distancing is, is keeping enough distance between yourself and the people around you so that if you cough or if you sneeze, your, your respiratory droplets can't reach them and vice versa. And, uh, you know, initially studies were saying it's three feet, but the, the correct length should be about six feet from your, uh, from your fellow people around you. So, so again, keeping your space, whether you're in a crowded area, which we could argue should not be, you shouldn't be any time at this point no. anyway. Uh, even within your household, to some degree, if people are coming in and out, keep a distance from them. Um, and I think that's the aspect of social distancing that, again, gets misunderstood. It's not that you don't get sick. We don't want you to get sick. It's not that you don't get it from the other person. We don't want you to get it from the other person. But I think the data was in China, originally, for every infected person, they got three or four other people infected. Mm-hmm. By social distancing, the only way to break this thing is if you get it, and you don't give it to another person, and that's how we can control this. That social distancing is to prevent people from giving it to each other very rapidly. Um, and social distancing, again, it's, it's stay home, obviously, as much as possible, to the argument where you shouldn't go out unless it's something essential. That's why schools are closed and sports, sporting events have been closed. Um, what about people working right now? There are a lot of people, including you and I right now, who are working from home. Um, any recommendations regarding, you know, even working at home or the recommendations as to when you should go out, should you go to the supermarkets if you need, if you need food, what, what, are, what are the kind of recommendations we would make to people as much as possible towards the, the basic needs? Certainly. There's, there's still, as you said, the basic needs and the essentials that we as human beings need to live. We need food. We're going to go to the grocery store. But when you're in those public places and when you're out for those essential activities, practice social distancing as much as possible. For instance, if you're in line at Publix, try to stay six feet away from other people, other shoppers, especially when you're actually in that cashier line, which can be difficult to do sometimes, but it is going to be advantageous for you. And, and, and that's something that we're all expecting to do now. Now, if you need to go out of the house for essential uh, activities also if you happen to cough or sneeze, even if you have allergies, because this time of year it's rampant. It is allergy season. So a lot of people are coughing and sneezing for those reasons. Cover your mouth. Cover it appropriately. Try to cough or sneeze into a tissue. Discard of that tissue immediately. Um, or cough and sneeze into your elbow. That's also appropriate. I think it's also scary and it's more important when you walk down the street and someone coughs, everyone kind of stops and pauses and gives them a stink eye now. It's a very interesting <laughs> environment right now. But this is a droplet spread virus, which is what makes it so dangerous. It's not like Ebola where you have to be in direct contact with someone in the late stages of the disease. So there are some Mm -hmm. uh, misinterpretations regarding that. And the droplet spread means that you can sneeze and it can hang in the air for, you can can have the virus sneeze in a room, walk out, someone else can walk in a few minutes later and still hang in the room. And that would bring us to the next question, which is something that is evolving as well regarding the use of masks. Mm-hmm. Um, so first, I think a lot of people don't really understand the difference between these N95 um, highly acute masks to be used in a very um, um, high-risk situation versus the surgical mask. Can you, can you explain the difference between the two so when people hear um, or read articles about masks, they can figure out which, which one's being talked about? Sure. So the surgical masks are the ones that we're seeing most commonly depicted in social media or in cartoons that are floating around or even on the news. These are loose-fitting masks, and they do cover your mouth and your nose, but the edges are not a tight, secure fit. There is leakage that happens either from when you cough or somebody else around you coughs. Um, These masks, the surgical masks, do not guarantee to filter out small airborne particles, um, and it's really not considered adequate respiratory protection. 
However, the N95 masks, those are tight-fitting masks that when you put them over your nose and your mouth, there is no leakage coming out from the edges. These masks actually, when, when healthcare professionals are fitted for these masks, they come in different sizes. And the fit test is very, very important to make sure that your size fits you appropriately. And when it does fit you appropriately, it actually filters out 95% of airborne particles. And it has a very tight seal, and it's considered proper respiratory protection. So those masks are the ones when you see our heroes and our medical caregivers, the emergency room doctors, the intensive care doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists with the bruises on their face that are on social media. Those are those very yeah. tight-fitting masks yeah. in those two situations. And that's not really what we're talking about that people could be using for any kind of protective measures. Now, the surgical mask, as you said, it's not very highly effective, but we could argue better than nothing. But mm-hmm. let's speak to hand-washing and the Mm -hmm. benefit of really using soap and water or alcohol-containing sanitizers to be, if you will, even more important than masks. I think sometimes people get complacent that they have a mask without recognizing the importance of really washing their hands. So do you have any recommendations towards both hand washing, how to do it, how frequently, um, and, you know, where it it remains as a weapon against the spread of um, coronavirus? I do. I, I think one of the best ways to have people understand why this is such an important weapon is to understand the reasoning behind it. So, for instance, if people were to understand that the coronavirus is actually encased in a layer of fat, in a bubble of fat, um, it's important to know that when you use soap and water, the soap actually helps to disintegrate that layer of fat around it. So it allows the virus, not the virus itself, to uh, disintegrate, but it doesn't have that protective layer anymore. The other way that soap and water helps is that when you're actually washing your hands and you're washing them properly, that means covering all sides of your hands in between your fingernails, uh, sorry, in between your fingers, under your fingernails, just the act of doing that, that physically helps wash away any germs and particles that are on your hands. Now, you're never going to get 100% of the germs and particles that are on your hands off by washing them, but you're going to ensure that most of it does get off. Uh, when so if people are home and they're with their family by themselves and they're not having any significant exposure to the outside world, uh, one would argue you don't need to wash your hands every regularly. But when would you wash your hands? Again, would it be if someone came into your house, if you're outside, you touch a doorknob, where, you know, where in the course of your normal activities, um, or your persistent normal activities, where would hand washing come into play? So most definitely before and after eating, um, before and after touching any high contact surfaces such as doorknobs, uh, countertops, kitchen countertops. And, and if you do come into contact with other people, of course, you're not shaking hands or, or any kind of physical contact to greet them. But you may have, you know, signed some paperwork for a plumber that came into your house. So you guys both touched the paper after such activities like that. So, um, you know, the eating and, and knowing that you touched a high contact service, those are times we know we need to wash our hands before and after. But we also have to think about those other times that maybe somebody else handled the package and then we immediately afterwards handled it. Those kind of times. Um, back to the masks, uh, again, the surgical masks now, they're a little bit more ubiquitous. There's not that much supply problems. Do you see people wearing them when they go out on a regular basis, uh, whether they're taking their dog for a walk or if they're going to public? Do you, do you see that as something that will be um, um, recommended more and more as uh, the virus has now gotten out into the community? You know, it's funny because when we were in the early days of this pandemic, before it was even termed a pandemic, I would see people in public places wearing masks. In, in large volumes. Now, when I do go out for those essential activities, if I go to a grocery store, I actually don't notice very many people wearing those masks. And I think it's because people are becoming cognizant of the World Health Organization and the CDC's recommendation that if you are a healthy individual, 
you're not coughing, you're not sneezing, you're not having symptoms, it's not necessary for you to wear a mask. Instead, those masks should be preserved for people who are sick and for healthcare workers. Right, right. Keep that social distancing, wash your hands, and the exactly. mask may not be as well as otherwise. And again, the risk would be someone wears a mask and thinks I can get close to someone else wearing a mask. Of course, that would be the behavior we don't want. So a couple of quick questions before we move on to the, the, the symptoms and more of the medical aspects. Um, can you give it or get it from your dog or cat? No. So that is also a very common question. We love our pets, but currently there's no evidence that you can catch this virus from pets, livestock, or wildlife. Um, yes, I know the initial initial incidences of this disease were thought to come from an animal, um, but as of now, there there is absolutely no evidence that you can catch it from your pets. In fact, one of the the perverse benefits, if you will, if I should use that term, you know, maybe maybe incorrectly, is that pet adoption seems to have gone through the roof as yeah. a home, and they're dealing with you know wanting a, that social isolation, using and giving that love to pets. So I think that's actually something that's uh, um, safe. Um, 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 uh, and certainly you're not going to uh, be giving it or getting it from your dog or cat from that standpoint. What about um, elderly? We're seeing a lot of, for example, elderly patients and their children, and the children could be 30 or 50, depends on <laughs> where you're, what you consider elderly. Um, should they be visiting their parents? Should they, care, you know, should they be, obviously, if they need to take care of the parents, it's one thing, but should we be recommend, recommending that families minimize contact with each other, especially if they're elderly members in the family? Most certainly, most certainly, because even if even if there's an elderly elderly individual, and, and I'll use the age 65, for instance, and they are perfectly healthy with no underlying chronic conditions, their immune system is still subpar from when it was when they were 20 or 30, and they're still not going to fight the virus as strongly as, as others would, as other younger individuals would. So certainly, I would say minimize your contact, social distancing, and just like you said, if you have to take care of your loved one, of course you have to take care of them, but please, please be be cognizant of the fact that you're you're still not... Um, too close to them. Try to keep at least three to six feet away at all times. It, it's such a transmissible virus. A good percentage of the people who have it are asymptomatic. They don't know they have it, which is exactly. the And uh-huh. that's where I think, again, goes back to your, your first point, and the one we have at home is the social distancing. So let's talk a little bit more about the medical recommendations. Um, um, what would be the symptoms? Again, nothing's 100%, but what are the more common symptoms? How would we tend to differentiate it between, say, allergies or a common cold, which are still around and, and people still have symptoms of those? Can you, can, you, can you give us any kind of guidelines? Or even when you're evaluating a patient, what are the kind of questions that might tip you more towards, hey, this is someone I'm concerned about versus doesn't sound like that's, uh, that's as, as, as high risk? Sure. So when we're evaluating patients and when, when all of this started, the first the, the three main symptoms that we were advised to look out were for fever, which medically is 100.4 or higher, uh, extreme fatigue, cough or shortness of breath, uh, any kind of lower respiratory symptoms, as we call them. Now, just like you alluded to, allergies can have many of these symptoms. Allergies don't have fever, though, and allergies rarely come with shortness of breath. And I say rarely because an asthmatic patient can, be, uh, can have environmental allergies, and that can trigger them to have shortness of breath. But really, we're looking for fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath. Now, since this all started and since we've uh, conducted more studies and seen more patients, we're seeing other symptoms come into play here. We're seeing extreme body aches. We're even seeing abdominal symptoms like diarrhea, nausea. And most recently, we're seeing the loss of smell or taste as well. Now, a lot of viruses, since they do affect our respiratory airways, do some to some degree depress our sense of smell and our sense of taste. But we're seeing with the coronavirus that it might be more than just what you experience during a common cold. Um, in terms of the sense of uh, smell and taste as an early sign or an asymptomatic sign, that's, that's, that's something that has been reported. So people who don't have those full fever body aches 
do note that, and that might be a sign of someone might have the symptoms. Are you getting calls for that? Are you getting people calling saying, I have, I fear my symptoms smells diminished, what do I do? Or has that not really come, uh, come up yet? I, I have not experienced that. In fact, I, that's one of the questions that I make sure to ask each and every patient I've been evaluating since that came onto our radar. And I have not gotten a yes answer for that, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. More, more common what I'm seeing is the chest tightness, shortness of breath, um, and the fatigue. Even fever. Not everybody's going to have that fever, but that's, that is also one of the common symptoms. So if someone, if someone or um, someone in the household has these symptoms, again, it's, it's not itchy eyes and maybe scratchy throat and sneezing, which might be allergies, which again, it's certainly uh, okay for people to investigate those as well. But they have that kind of sense of shortness of breath. They have a fever, the aches that you feel. Um, what would be the first recommendation for someone at home, not, not difficulty breathing, not an extremis? What, what, what should they do first? So the first thing I would advise them to do is call their primary care physician or call their healthcare provider or just come onto a telemedicine platform and have an evaluation done by a physician or uh, a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. Point is you want to talk to a medical professional about the symptoms that you're having so that we can ask you further questions and guide you in which direction you're going and share with you what we think is going on. And, and in fact, Baptist Health does have a great self-assessment tool online, which we both talked about prior to the, 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 uh, the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can find the resource in, in the podcast uh, show notes, baptisthealth-coronavirus.com um, slash self-assessments. Again, long word, but you'll see it in the program notes. But these are the kind of self-assessments or other kind of assessments people could have. Now, let's say someone calls uh, for a care and demand evaluation, and you go through the questions, and you feel, hey, you know, it does sound like you have some of those symptoms. It could be what would you recommend that they do? So our next step, once we've identified somebody who might have COVID-19, is to determine whether or not this person would benefit from going into an urgent care for further evaluation and or testing, or are their symptoms bad enough that we need to send them to an emergency room? The, the main point here is that, unfortunately, the testing kits are not as abundant as we'd like them to be, and we would love to test everybody. But if we feel that you have mild symptoms and can, with supportive care, heal just as well in your home, we might not recommend that you go in for evaluation or for testing. Uh, if we do feel that you, testing is required, then we'll help arrange that. We'll help guide you to what location to go to and um, uh, coordinate your care with the, the medical staff at that facility. So to control this uh, pandemic, we will need more testing. We expect to have more testing. But presently, someone at home, mild symptoms, a little scared, don't have to leave their house for any reason. Basically, the recommendation might be just ride it out at home, take some Tylenol, stay in bed, and if there's more significant symptoms, then you might direct them to a higher level uh, setting. Is that appropriate? Certainly. Absolutely. And with our Care on Demand app, you can log in and, and request a visit at any time, especially during this pandemic. It's wonderful that Baptist has, has made this free to all its users. It really is an incredible resource. What about someone who's asymptomatic? What about someone at home and they say, geez, I wonder if I have this? What would we recommend for those people? So it's very, very understandable that everybody wants to get tested because everybody wants to know. You know, we fear what we don't know. Once we know something, we can navigate a path and and a road uh, ahead. And and I think that's going to be very comforting. But if you're not having any symptoms, you haven't been exposed and you haven't traveled to any of the affected regions, then our recommendations are please practice social distancing, monitor for any symptoms. And the minute you have symptoms, reach out to a medical professional so we can appropriately guide you. And then you did mention the keyword, you're not exposed to someone, so now let's say someone who's asymptomatic, but in reality or by uh, what they believe, they were exposed to someone who has symptoms. Maybe not even testing positive. Coworker, someone down the street, someone you know about, last few days you've been around them, again, you're asymptomatic. Would you then continue 
stay at home, you know, the, the social distancing, or would you have those people um, go to a higher level of, of, of care for eventual testing? Well, I think that kind of falls into a gray zone. If you do not have symptoms and you were in, in contact, in close contact, mind you, that means within six feet of somebody who happened to sneeze, but you don't know if that person had COVID-19 or not, um, what would be best for you to monitor your symptoms, stay vigilant. If anything happens, contact a healthcare provider. Do practice social distancing. On the other hand, if you don't have any symptoms, but you know you were in close contact with somebody who has tested positive, then it would be prudent for you to engage in self-quarantine for 14 days. And again, monitor your symptoms, check your temperatures twice a day, and report any high temperatures to your healthcare provider. As you said, you could be exposed, you could have it, you could have no symptoms. Now your obligation is to not give it to anyone else to practice. Exactly. That's great. Okay. Um, before we just talk about little telehealth things in, in, in general, again, I think this information is very helpful. These are the kind of questions that we're all exposed to and I think might help allay some fears, if not give people some sense of control over what is otherwise a, a somewhat scary situation. Um, let's talk about telehealth. I mean, the care and demand platform, not the specifically still the platform, but for people to be able to sit in their homes and get medical evaluations, um, had a role, has a role, and will have a further role. We could see in our medical practices now based on some mm-hmm regulatory improvements. We can do visits with people, again, using their computers, using their phones, um, which is becoming very well-received. Well um, where do you see that going? Where do you see the, the healthcare? You know, I'm a cardiologist, and I can have a patient who has to leave work and park in a crowded parking lot and wait for me for 30 minutes just to say, hey, let's go over some labs or you know, let, let's do this. Wouldn't that be great to do it in a televisit? So where, do, where do you see telemedicine moving towards, especially given its incredible um, incredible resource that it's become in this, in this, uh, in this environment? Well, I think, I think telemedicine is very beneficial, especially in this pandemic. Now, we forget that we're, you know, we're not only seeing, and by we, I mean medical professionals, we're not only seeing coronavirus concerns in our offices, but we're seeing the normal everyday colds, cuts, bruises, um, ankle sprains, diabetes follow-up, lab follow-ups, like you're saying. And for most of those, we do not need a physical exam. We don't need um, a full in-person visit. And that's when telemedicine is absolutely benefit, beneficial, especially when we're trying to practice social distancing. I think this is not only going to help us with this pandemic. I think going forward, this is going to help uh, provide general care to most of our population as well. Um, I, I could not agree more. And actually, I think it's going to be a, a somewhat positive outcome of this whole uh, experience. Um, Having said that, any final comments, any final thoughts, anything you want to address that we didn't uh, really kind of come up with in our conversation? Uh, maybe a comment on, on the flu, which has had some, some confusions, why this is not the flu, and maybe why um, um, it's more dangerous than the flu in terms of how, how it's transmitted and the significant asymptomatic course that people can have. I think, I think it's shared a lot of similarities with the flu, and then, of course, the differences we're well aware of. And I think the one thing that people need to remember is that the flu is still out there, not to scare anybody, but the flu is still a very prevalent infection and it's still taking lives just as it was last year. And, and this is something that we have a vaccine for. We have those precautions for. So I still urge everybody, if their doctor's offices have it available, if their pharmacies have it available, please go out and get your flu vaccination and, and make sure that you do it every year. Because if your body is protected from the flu and not fighting the flu and God forbid you get coronavirus, your body can take its efforts into fighting that instead of having to fight the flu and coronavirus because there are times when patients have both. Correct. I think that's very, very important information. Um, I want to thank you very much, um, Dr. Kaur, for taking your time from your busy schedule. I know you're helping, you. our patients during this, helping our patients during this acute time of need. Um, really, your expertise and, and I think more importantly, your calmness 
in the conversation and uh, are a great benefit to our listeners and our community. Um, you know, folks, it's clear this is this is going to be a long journey, and the more information we have, you know, the more we truly know, the more we can act responsibly. Um, our roles are, are really not only to protect ourselves, as we've discussed, but also our loved ones. And by practicing what was discussed today, we can also protect others in our community, especially those at the higher risk. That's our our, our, our moral obligation as well. We at Baptist Health South Florida are committed to your safety and well-being. Um, please use the resources listed in the podcast. Um, resource section at the end. Um, any questions or thoughts or ideas for future podcasts, as always, please email us at BaptistHealthTalk at BaptistHealth.net. For now, thank you again, Dr. Kaur. Thank um, you. Stay safe and stay home. You too. Take care, everybody. Find additional valuable health and wellness information on our resource blog at BaptistHealth.net slash news. And be sure to interact with us on our social media channels for live and upcoming events. This podcast is brought to you by Baptist Health South Florida, healthcare that cares.